Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're in a series entitled Marriage and Sexuality. Today is part nine. If you've missed any of the messages, I encourage you to go back and listen to them, pick up on any pieces that you might have missed. I'm hoping to speak on uh, the uh, singles life or singleness next week, and, uh, but today we're going to be speaking on adultery and divorce. So before we begin, let's uh, bow for a word of prayer and ask the, invite the Holy Spirit to speak into our hearts and to tell him that we are intentionally choosing to engage, not just sit back like this, but to engage our hearts. That means our minds, our emotions, and our will to respond. There's no point in just sitting and listening. This is about God doesn't just say things. He expects his people to respond to what he's saying. So we're going to invite him to do that and tell him we're going to engage with him. Father, we, we thank you for this morning. Oh, Lord, we were lifted. Uh, our souls were lifted um, to the heavens. And we just, we just couldn't imagine, some of us just couldn't imagine uh, what's heaven going to be like uh, when we are in our perfect state and uh, <laughs> billions of people. What will it be like? around your throne, singing. What will the choruses be like? Oh my, I can't imagine. Your word tells us there will, that there will be no more tears, but I have a feeling there might be tears of joy. Not tears of regret anymore, not tears of sorrow, but tears of just unadulterated, pure joy. And we're telling you, Father, we can't hardly wait. Come soon, Lord Jesus. We thank you um, for your word. Thank you that your word is truth. Thank you that it is life. Thank you that it invites us into the life of the Holy Trinity, where there is abundant living, to come out of our sinful past of enslavement and to walk out into freedom and light and wholeness. God, grant us that desire to be that city on a holy hill, to be pure and holy, and uh, to walk in wholeness. This morning, as we look at this particular topic, I pray that you would draw all men and women to yourself through this topic. Those who have gone through pain, I pray that you'd bring healing. Those who have uh, initiated some of these kinds of sins, just like the previous ones we've talked in the previous weeks, uh, I pray that they would find forgiveness and redemption today and this coming week and the weeks to come. And uh, Lord, uh, above all, we want to honor you with our thoughts, our words, our motives, and our actions. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you have been through some of what we're going to be talking about, adultery or divorce, and we're deeply hurt by what happened to you. And I want you to experience God's healing today and hope and in the days to come. Some of you sinned through adultery or divorcing a spouse. I want you to experience God's forgiveness today and in the days to come. 
There are others who may be entertaining the idea of either adultery or divorce, and I want you to see what God has to actually say about it. And then there's others uh, who may not be entertaining it now, but you may face it. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. So let's begin with adultery. In the, in the 1950s, Dr. Kinsey found that 50% of married men had extramarital sex, and today most experts estimate it at approximately 60%. 26% of women by age 40 had, it, had had an affair. Today they figure it's about 35%, and some predict it will soon be four out of all five, uh, four out of five men and two out of three men, uh, women. But why? There's a number of reasons for its escalation, and we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but I just want to point out a couple of things. At one time, our culture provided all sorts of props for fidelity and erected fences for lust and sexual need. Neighbors cared and watched. The church admonished and threatened. Friends frowned. Pregnancy was a real threat. And we didn't have the mobility to easily get away to places where we're not seen. And because we're affluent now, we can, ev we can even pay for it. And there wasn't the media exposure urging us to consider our sexual desires as sexual rights and a means to personal fulfillment. None of these, of course, is a justification for adultery. It's just an explanation of some of the factors that have contributed uh, to our, our world the way it is today. So why is adultery wrong? Well, it hurts. Uh, first of all, because it's disobedient to God, and then secondly, because it hurts others. Of course, it's listed as one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. And as we already saw, Proverbs and Song of Solomon celebrate sex. We saw that in the message on marriage and sex. But it is always and only condoned and celebrated within the institution of marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, uh, Paul said, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Adultery is sex outside of its intended limits, and it hurts people. First, it introduces comparison and competition into the marriage. We're not going to expand on these. We're just going to note some of them just so that we get a little bit of context for what we're talking about. Second, it produces guilt and shame for both. Third, it creates feelings of rejection and being unwanted in the hurt spouse. Fourth, it breaks trust. Fifth, it tortures both emotionally, uh, both of them emotionally, because of the one thing that cannot be openly shared, that experience between, uh, between the two, which is shared with another outside of the marriage. And that emotional uh, toll uh, it exacts a, a huge price. I was reading about it, uh, the story of a woman who had been involved in, in, a, in an adulterous kind of affair. And she talked about forgiveness later and that kind of stuff. And, uh, but she said, continually she's tortured by these emotional thoughts that she cannot share with her husband now. And sixth, it often leads to divorce and hurt children. So, um, it, uh, uh, so when it's out of the context that God intended, it does tremendous amount of damage and, uh, does tr and tremendous amount of hurt. 
Now, what constitutes adultery? Hebrews 13, 4, uh, the writer says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, we know that for a married person to have intercourse uh, sex outside of marriage is adultery. Scripture is very clear on that. But the question that is being raised today by many is, is sexual touching or fondling or oral sex or masturbating with another outside of marriage also adultery? Is it sexually immoral? And Matthew uh, and, and Jesus says some profound things that help us to discern what the scriptures are saying. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Evidently, you can commit adultery in your thoughts like fantasizing. Jesus made it plain that adultery need not even uh, involve the uh, genitals. The soul has a sex life of its own. Jesus was striking a blow at the legalism of Christians who enjoy the illusion that technical chastity is all that fidelity is about. So there's sexual intercourse adultery on the one end of the spectrum, but according to what Jesus said there in Matthew, uh, there, is, there is sight and thought adultery, lust on the other end of the spectrum, so if we put it on a continuum uh, that's coming up, you see, you see intercourse adultery, you see sight and, and thought adultery on the other side, and right in the middle, obviously in a progression, would be touch or fondling. And uh, young people uh, know this and know it well and take it to heart. And that goes for anybody for that matter. Outside the marriage covenant, the Bible declares all three are sin. Makes it very clear. Now, are there some practical guidelines to avoid uh, adultery? In my intro, I talked about some of the factors that have led to the situation we find ourselves in our world today. Not just our culture, but our entire world today. Um, and the scriptures admonish us that we need to set up Guidelines. Do we need to be uh, proactive? We need to be intentional, intentional about this matter and take it seriously. In Romans chapter 13, it says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no, what? What's the word? Provision for the flesh to gratify the desires. You have to do something to protect, uh, protect yourself against the fleshly desires. And I want to share with you three guidelines that Fran and I have established for ourselves and have used for ourselves and have used for uh, decades. Uh, I'm not making this a legalistic thing. I'm just telling you what we have done for ourselves. Number one, don't have a personal friend of the opposite sex. If you're married, you you do not have a personal friend of the opposite sex. Period. Friend, yes, but not a personal friend. Now, here's the distinction. You don't hang out together. You don't uh, go out to movies and enjoy sports together or travel together. Here's what happens. When you're dating before marriage, life is good. Few problems. Isn't that true? 
I often say to that, Fran and I often talk about that, say, what, what happened? I just wanted to marry you. And uh, it, it's got a lot more complex since then. But once you have to face personal and financial and child-rearing and health and work problems, it greatly depletes your emotional energy reserves. And if you then have someone else from the opposite sex listening, encouraging, and filling your emotional tank, a bond begins to form. Number two, guard yourself with couple friends. Adulterous affairs often take place between couples who are best friends. We have couple friends, Fran and I do, but I am not a personal friend of the woman in the other couple, and Fran isn't a personal friend with the man. That means I don't do coffee with that person. I don't make phone calls to them. We don't hang out together, you know, unless it's just uh, something, you know, just sending a, a text or a, an email about uh, some piece of business or whatever, and neither does Fran. Watch out for the frequency of your visits. It's not healthy to be together a couple of times a week or even necessarily every week. Why not do something useful like minister together? <laughs> Sign up at church. There's, there's plenty of chances to minister to people. Learn how to minister to, to others instead of just sitting and talking about nothing that doesn't count for eternity. And you'll find that you probably, uh, that will work better. And you should have multiple couple friends and even visit uh, all together. If you don't, it can quickly lead to too much familiarity. And in some cases, it even leads to wife swapping. And that has been going on for years in our region, even among some church-going people. Just heard about it recently again. A woman came up after one of the services uh, in this series, told me about what was going on in her area. Number three. Here's another piece of practical advice. Set parameters with workplace colleagues. Offices and workplaces are fertile ground for budding romances. Everybody looks good, smells good, and is on their best behavior. You don't see their hair when they got up that morning. You didn't smell their breath before they brushed their teeth, and you didn't hear them burp, or worse. <laughs> I do not go to restaurants alone with another woman other than my wife, my daughters, and granddaughters, or mother. And if I ever have great-great-granddaughters, I'll do it with them too, if they'll do it. I do this for my sake, for Fran's sake, and for the other women's sake too. In the office, I often meet with staff women who are great leaders, but I turn on lights, I keep window blinds open, and my office door window open, and I have a policy that Fran may enter my office at any time without knocking, and she does. Often interrupts conversations and my thought processes are shot. <laughs> I'm 62, you know. <laughs> now I go, where were we? Southland made a wise decision 15 years ago when they hired Fran. Uh, we were in a church uh, years ago whose denomination, uh, de denominational president traveled a lot, and he had a mistress on the side. For quite a length of time, he traveled alone. I never travel without Fran for extended trips, either domestically or internationally, and if she can't come, I take along another man. You can call me a legalist if you like, but I understand the deception of sin and the wiliness of the devil.
And uh, uh, I'm going to, <laughs> Billy Graham and his associates had a lifelong policy. They wouldn't even ride an elevator without another woman uh, alone on the elevator. Now, I, I, I'm not that patient. <laughs> so I'll chance it for a, a 30, 20-second ride, but uh, that's what they did. And, uh, you know, we can, we, can, we can chuckle at that, but really, think about it. How many great leader, Christian leaders around the world have fallen in the decades that I've lived? Tons of them. Billy Graham has never fallen. What a statesman, and what a, uh, what a light for the gospel. <clears throat> Jesus said that you have to be intentional about guarding against sexual sin. Matthew 5 says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And that was long before magazines and internet porn. Think about that. That verse, we read it in the context of our time, but that was written at a time when they didn't even have that. How much more do we need that verse for us today? There have to be guides. Some of you, some, some of you people, you need to go unplug your computers. Some of you need to throw your computers away. Some of you need to shut off all your media. you got to put a guard around because Satan's trying to destroy you and your marriage and your family. Billy Graham was interviewed by David Frost, and uh, Frost asked him, he was the English commentator, and asked Dr. Graham if temptation and lust were uh, as much an issue for one in so high a calling, one who walks the straight and narrow so well. Graham paused and then he told, uh, told of one of his associates who was conducting a campaign in Paris years earlier. And on the way back from the meeting, the offerings of the night along the neon-lit streets were hard to ignore. When he got back to his room, he felt such inordinate pressure from the sights he had just witnessed on the streets below that he was afraid that he would make a choice that night that would spell his ruin. They were staying in an old hotel that required a large key to unlock or lock the door, regardless of from which side of the door you were in. So you had a key. If you wanted to go into the room, you inserted it, turned it, went in. But when you wanted to lock it on the inside, you needed that same key, and then you locked it. And uh, in the morning, you would use it again to, to go out. But uh, what he did was he locked the door on the inside, took the key to the narrow window, and threw it out the window to the ground below. He later told Billy Graham th this story, and then he said, I had to do something that drastic if, it, if I was to keep my commitment to God and to my wife. you got to do whatever it takes to make no provision for the flesh. Amen? And if, you, uh, if you'll do that, and young people, you're starting early before you make some of the mistakes some of us have made. Make those kinds of commitments now. Make some of those fences and those provisions not to, um, uh, to assist the flesh now. Of course, adultery often leads to divorce. Uh, which we're going to talk about next. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and what are the two words? Hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Hold fast is used elsewhere for being faithful to one's covenant or vow. Right from the outset, we can see that God was opposed to divorce. Husband and wife 
we're to permanently hold fast to one another. That God had this in mind is affirmed by Jesus' own remarks when he quoted the Genesis 2.24 passage. And remember, Jesus is God. The Pharisees tested Jesus. Um, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, is what they asked him. And look how Jesus answered. Have you not read, this is Matthew 19, that he who created them from the beginning <clears throat> made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become flesh. There he's, uh, he's quoting Genesis 2.24. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Now he's commenting on it. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Whenever you hear that at a wedding ceremony, remember, Jesus, who is God, is the one said, let not man separate. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Paul said the same. 1 Corinthians 7. He said, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. God actually hates divorce. He's always hated divorce. He hasn't changed in that. Malachi 2 says, You say, he's speaking to the people, why does he not accept your offering? Malachi was saying this to the people. Why does he not accept? This is what you're saying. Why does he not accept our offering? Because the Lord, and now Malachi gives him the reason, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been, and what's the word? Faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? What, what is it? Godly offspring. One of the reasons he doesn't want divorce is godly offspring. It's not the only reason, as you'll see, but it is a key reason. So guard yourselves in your spirits and let none of you be, and what's the word again? Faithless to the wife of your youth, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord. The God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. <clears throat> so why does God hate divorce? Because it breaks faith. It breaks faith, first of all, between a husband and wife. God hates the hurt <clears throat> and the pain that divorce always creates. It rips people apart emotionally who have been forged into one flesh, thereby causing a lifetime of misery. He hates that. He's not, he's not a killjoy. He, he just doesn't make arbitrary rules. He knows that when we break them, we're going to get hurt. And others are going to be hurt. It brings about financial ruin as standards of living are lowered. Divorced men are two times as likely to die of heart disease, stroke, hypertension, and cancer. Can you believe that? In fact, they found that a, a person uh, who smoked, uh, that a person who gets divorced is as likely to get cancer as somebody who is a, a, a pack-a-day smoker. They did a study on that. Isn't that amazing? 
Divorced women are two, uh, two or three times as likely to die from various forms of cancer. God hates that. He hates it, not the person. He hates what it does to people. Here's the second reason. It breaks faith between parents and children. One million children each year have to face divorce in the United States. God hates that. Three-fifths of all divorces involve minor children. More than half, about 60% of children of baby boom parents will spend at least one year living with only one parent. One of the most startling of all the statistics is that three out of five of those kids felt rejected by one of the parents. And that creates huge inner wounds. And can you imagine what that will perpetuate in the generations that come after that? It just creates just it just creates such havoc in society. That's why God hates it. God hates divorce because it hurts children. And when it hurts children, it greatly inhibits the chances that these children will become godly. In Malachi's view, divorce may frustrate the purpose of having godly offspring as we just read. Now comes the third one. And this is the one that people miss. And it's bad. On the horizontal, it's bad. What it does to people is really bad. But I want to talk a little bit about the vertical right now. It breaks faith between the couple and God. Marriage is a covenant between the couple and God, not just between the couple. This isn't a business arrangement. This isn't a business contract. This isn't a contract between two partners to do something. This is a, a three uh, part contract. There's three persons involved in the contract of marriage. A wife, a husband, and God. And God takes the vows made to him very seriously. Further, man and woman together are image bearers of God. Now I want you to think about this now. So when there's a divorce, it doesn't reflect the perfect love and harmony and unity within the three persons of the Godhead. Now, we need a little bit of context to, to, to actually get what I just said. You're going, okay, well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good point. But we don't really get it. So let's go back to the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5 says that Israel was placed into the center of nations with countries all around her. Isaiah 49.6, Isaiah 42.6, and other passages say that she was placed there to be a light to bring salvation to the nations, fulfillment of the promise of, uh, to Abraham that his seed would be a blessing to the nations. But what was that light? What exactly do we mean by that light? How did it shine? Exodus 15.14 uh, gives us uh, the beginning of some hints through the deliverance from Egypt. The peoples around saw that God was powerful and he was a mighty deliverer and that he could guide them. Those were some characteristics, some aspects of God that the surrounding nations could see by what God was doing through Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 5 to 8 uh, talks about the statutes and the rules that they were given. Uh, to be, uh, so that they, they would have wisdom and understanding. And then it says, in the sight of all the peoples. What nation has a God so near, they would say? What nation has statutes and rules that are so righteous? And it would cause 
the peoples around where they were centered in, shining as a light, to take note and be attracted to the light. That was the point of the light, to attract them to the light, and it worked. In 1 Kings chapter 4, it says, kings from the nations sent officials, from all the nations around, sent officials to see what was going on. Uh, the Queen of Sheba even came herself. And when they came, uh, they were to minister to them. They, they had become a kingdom of priests, God said in Exodus, Exodus 16, verse six, or 19, verse 6. Many Gentiles became proselytes to Judaism. For example, the Ethiopian eunuch we see in the book of Acts. What's he doing over there? He's from Africa, way down there in Africa. What's he doing in Jerusalem, guess what he was doing? He was worshiping at the temple. And when he gets in his chariot and he's heading back, he's reading the book of Isaiah and the angel tells Philip to go back there and minister to him and, and kingdom of priests, by the way. And he says, uh, and he interprets for him what he's reading out of the book of Isaiah because he doesn't understand. And he introduces him to Jesus and he was saved. That's amazing, isn't it? And now Jesus says... We're the light of the world. Israel was light there. We are now the light of the world, according to Matthew chapter 5, 14. And one of the ways God designed us to shine light was through our marriages. Because through our marriages, we demonstrate aspects of God that the world doesn't understand and doesn't have. People can see what God is like in our marriages. In the Old Testament, their marriages were to reflect God's faithfulness, another aspect of God, to his people Israel. In the New Testament, our marriages are to reflect Christ in the church. And Paul, I'm not just making this up, Paul came up with it in Ephesians chapter 5. He talks about the mystery of Christ in the church in the midst of talking about marriage. And how husbands are supposed to love and nurture and care for uh, their wives and so on. And, uh, and it's a picture of the church, that he will, <clears throat> of Christ to the church. He will never leave or forsake us, God. He doesn't leave or forsake his people. Can you believe that? Do you think a needy world out there needs to hear that? You see, when we break our marriages, we're demonstrating the opposite. He, uh, we are demonstrating in our marriages when their whole harmony, his care, his compassion, his tenderness, his nurture and love that Christ has for the church, and people can see that. Can you imagine if our broken culture can see that when people come to Southland, they walk away from sexual immorality and brokenness in their... Uh, I mean, maybe you, may, may, maybe you were involved in adultery, or maybe you had... <clears throat> maybe you were involved in pornography and premarital sex like I was, and, and, uh, and homosexuality, and, and all these different kinds of things, and divorce and stuff like that. But when, when the people come to Southland, something happens at church. Amen. Can you imagine if a broken culture saw that, and suddenly our marriages become whole and there's restoration and there's forgiveness and, there's, and, and, and making it better. We can't undo the past, but we can start from where we are. Isn't it true? Can you imagine if the world could see that? If our community, our region, and beyond, we were made whole, reflecting who God is. Now we've got their attention. Now they'd be interested. 
And then as the New Testament kingdom of priests that Peter says we now are, Peter says uh, that we then could minister to those whose hearts have been opened, always ready to answer to, uh, to those who ask us for the reason of hope that is within us. That's why God designed it like that. And that's why he says, don't mess with it. This is a way of being light that will attract, cause people to ask questions, wonder why in their situation everything is messed up, but in yours, you, maybe you were messed up, but it isn't anymore. Your, is wholeness, and now we're bringing up people who don't get messed up like that. And they say, why is that? And now we can be kingdoms a kingdom of priests in the New Testament and explain that to them and give them an answer for that. Isn't that the truth? Oh! There's a reason. There's the theological reason behind all of this. Well, we've got to move on. Does the Bible give any allowance for divorce? The law in Deuteronomy 24, uh, we find that the Old Testament law allowed for divorce. Jesus confirmed this in Mark chapter 10, verse 5, when he said, Moses permitted divorce. This is significant. The same law of God that expressly forbids murder and adultery and lying and stealing and coveting allows, there's no caveats for murder. You know, except in these cases, then you can murder them. You know, that kind of stuff. But in the case of divorce, he has caveats. Uh, except, uh, and allows for instances of divorce. Does this mean that God condones divorce? Well, we already saw that he hates it because of what it does to people and what it does to his kingdom, expansion of his kingdom. But Jesus explained the reason for the law's allowance of divorce. Matthew 19, verse 8, he says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And he continually points us back to the ideal. Because of your hardness of heart, he said. In other words, though he hates divorce in general, sinful human beings are capable of creating specific situations where divorce can be allowed. And I'm going to share just a couple with you, uh, of them with you right now. Number one, Jesus allowed for divorce in the case of sexual immorality. He said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. They were trying to trap Jesus, that is, two schools of thought, there was the uh, liberal Hillel school that said you can divorce your wife for any reason, like a spoiled fish dish, or because you saw an, a prettier woman, that would make your own wife indecent, so you could just divorce her and marry the other one. And uh, then there was a conservative Shammai school that said a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found some, un, uh, some sexual immorality in her. So the former, the Hillel school, seems in keeping with what we see in today's culture, just divorce for any reason. And that's basically what it's become out there. Free for all. Jesus said no. Except for sexual immorality, pornea is the wor Greek word behind that. What does that sound like? That's where we get our word pornography from. Pornea is a broad term referring to any and all sexual intercourse outside of biblical marriage. So it refers to adultery, it refers to prostitution, and I've got passages, but we just don't have time to expand on that. Prostitution, incest, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. Uh, for fornication, homosexuality, and bestiality would be included here as well. Any sexual immorality was grounds for divorce, according to Jesus. And the reason for Jesus making this exception is that sexual immorality 
grievously defiles and corrupts that one flesh union in the first place. The very thing that they're supposed to be like this when you have sexual, sexual immorality is actually going outside of that and breaking that. It defiles it. It's not what God intended. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not saying the offended spouse must seek divorce. Only that the person is justified in doing so. And in most cases, let's say there's been uh, uh, infidelity and one of them has lapsed into something. I'm talking about something that isn't serial or something that isn't repetitive. Something that happened at one time. Then other principles kick into gear. Things such as as uh, forgiveness and restoration and healing and those kinds of things, which also reflect who God is. Isn't it true? That's why God said to Hosea, he said, go back and love your wife. And she was a prostitute. The prophet Hosea's wife. And he said, love your wife. That's not emotional. That's of the will. Love a wife who's a prostitute? It'd be very hard, wouldn't it? Number two, uh, second uh, se second uh, case of exception would be what Paul allowed for the divorce in case of desertion. 1 Corinthians 7 says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. They're under the influence of the believing person. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So if the, uh, if the other partner deserts or leaves, then let it be so, and the principle of peace uh, comes into play. God has called you to peace. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Some translations use the word bound. It's not bound. God has called you to peace. Um, this is the exact same thing that Paul said about widows. Uh, he used that, that same kind of thinking. 1 Corinthians 7, he said, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Paul even encouraged remarriage uh, for widows at such a time. For example, if widows uh, couldn't exercise sexual self-control, they should remarry. It was better to marry than burn with passion. And there were other reasons he did, it. He did the same thing that we find in 1 Timothy, but we don't need to explore that today. But certainly if he said to the widows that it was... Uh, it was uh, it was wise for them to do it if they were dealing with sexual passion, then uh, that would certainly apply to the divorced person who is no longer bound, meaning they're free, uh, to do the same thing. Third, in case of physical abuse. Now, several considerations incline us to believe that desertion can occur as well by physical abuse as, uh, as by the actual act of departure as well. So it's not, uh, we, we think, here at Southland, this is how we apply the passage, and I'll show you how we do it. Not just the desertion, but that physical abuse actually constitutes about the same kind of thing. 
And we see uh, that there can be concessions made. We see that uh, with Matthew 19, Jesus said it's sexual immorality, but then Paul came along and he said, uh, he said well, yeah, but then there's this other issue. If the unbeliever leaves, you've got to le let them leave. The principle of peace has to rule in that kind of a situation. So there were certain, uh, to protect the blameless spouse, spouse from some intolerable situations, uh, God allowed these kinds of things, though he doesn't like it. But sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. A spouse leaves, they leave. Or they want to start... I mean, we had, we had a situation with sexual immorality years ago. Uh, a woman in our church and her husband was just bringing one sexual partner in after another into the home. Well, that's intolerable. Those are intolerable situations. Why God allowed, allows it finally to stop that nonsense and uh, to protect the blameless ones in those situations. <clears throat> There's the, and uh, here's another thing to consider. The fact that physical abuse in marriage isn't mentioned in the Bible, however, doesn't mean that God doesn't consider it sinful and awful. So somebody says, well, it's not in the Bible, physical abuse. It doesn't, say, doesn't actually say that precisely. You can leave because of physical abuse. No. Neither does the Bible say anything about sexting. Taking nude photos of yourself and then, and, and then sending it out to everybody, as many young people are doing today. Does it say anything about sexting in the Bible? Yes or no? Is there any of us that would condone that? No, not at all. Uh, but you can't prove it out of the Bible. You see, here, here's the situation. The Bible can't take every can't take every possible situation in the human existence for all of history, billions of people, and list every single instance in the Bible. You'd have millions of pages, a Bible that would be maybe as, as high as to the ceiling. And I doubt any of you would read it. It's impossible. So what it does is the same thing that our law does. It has a general command, and then it usually gives some, it gives some examples uh, around it, how to apply the principles, and we can see then how the Bible applies the principles, and then with situations that aren't identical to that, then we know how to apply the situation, like sexting. We would stand up here with authority and say, sexting is wrong, stop it. Well, you can't prove it out of the Bible. No, but with principles we can. It's in, in law, in, you know, in our country, we call it case law. They make a law, and then they have to apply it to the individual kinds of situations. So the first uh, case comes up, and they, and, they, and they rule on it a certain way, and after that, everybody looks at the case law to see how they applied that law to that situation, and then they try to apply it in this particular case. Countries do that sometimes with a thing called case law. So if uh, instead God does it that way, and we also have the Holy Spirit to help us uh, apply his will to our many situations. Here's a rule for Bible ethics that are included here. Sins which are equivalent in extremity and consequences to the victims should produce similar eventualities in terms of restitution and victim response. Now, that's, that's very technical there, but I'm gonna, so I'm going to explain it like this. 
uh, where there are similarities in what it does to the innocent victim between this kind of uh, situation and this situation, and this one is listed in the Bible and this one isn't, then you use this one to help you figure out how to deal with this one. That's really what it's saying. Does that make sense? That's what, and that's how you come up with it. Otherwise, there's, there's so many things that you, you would never be able to make a ruling on. But it's a proper way. And remember this. We can't, just de- we can't just say, ah, see, it's not in the Bible. I'll just come up with whatever I want. Remember this. You and I will stand before God one day. You will. I will. And so this isn't a loophole. <laughs> this is... This is demonstrating how we have to take the principles of God's Word and and carefully and prayerfully submit it to the Holy Spirit. Deal with these kind real-life situations. And with this in mind, it becomes self-evident that habitual domestic violence ruins a marriage just as much as desertion. This is so, uh, so precisely because violence separates the spouses Every bit as profoundly as any physical departure could do. So is a deserted spouse more victimized than a beaten spouse? And the answer is a resounding no. And I added a fourth one very quickly, though I'm not going to spend any time in it. But it, I mean, it could really, here's a fourth case. It really could come under the first one, but just because it, because it's, yeah, I, I just wanted to highlight this one because uh, uh, it, it is a, it, we, we cannot forget this. Here's another reason uh, for divorce, uh, sexual abuse of the children, the exact same principles of interpretation hold in uh, such an instance. Now, of course, we could use the argument also from, from case number one, which is about sexual immorality, pornea, and all of that, but I think it warrants its own special line. And so I put it up there. Now, here's a caution. Don't automatically rush into divorce just because your spouse committed adultery. And now you're hurting and justified to do so. You'd be making a huge mistake. Divorce itself is also painful. It's not just what's happened before that leads to divorce. The divorce itself is painful. Though in the short term, it may bring immediately, uh, immediate relief. Consider that years down the road, there are graduations, weddings, annual holidays such as Christmas and so on, where the pain certainly resurfaces and resurfaces and resurfaces. Many people have testified that the pain didn't actually end after the divorce. A study of divorced couples with preschool children shows that just one year after divorce, 60% of the men and 73% of the women said, I wish we'd tried harder, we made a mistake. That's a high percentage, so don't rush into it. Even when you have a legitimate reason. I'm talking here more so on the adulterous side and desertion. Well, desertion you can't help. But if you divorce and decide to remarry, make sure that the pain from your broken marriage has been fully healed by Jesus before you begin dating again. Dating someone during this time of separation and for a time afterwards will only delay your healing. Uh, 
Dating will be like a drug or alcohol that numbs your pain, but your pain must be healed by Jesus. And the minute the dating is over and the wedding takes place, the hurt resurfaces. And that's why we, uh, we, we're, uh, we're, we don't rush to marry people uh, right away after that. We tell them to wait uh, till they've got some healing. God is using this time to grow and change you further. You also want to be healed and healthy for your second marriage. As much, as many problems as you, you had going into the first marriage, it just got compounded from the, from the failed marriage. Which is why the divorce rate for second marriages is 70% instead of 45 to 50%. Because there's so much additional stuff that's brought into the marriage that they hadn't counted on, and we can help you with that. This is how I want to wrap up. Adultery and divorce do carry great consequences, and we, uh, we talked about that for a few minutes already. But this is what I want to say to you. They're not the unpardonable sins. They're not. They can be forgiven, just like the other sins that we've been dealing with over the last month. Jesus' blood is powerful enough to take care of those sins too. Aren't you glad? Here's something else I want to say to you. God never wastes your pain and your hurt. Never. You may be going through tremendous pain and hurt. Maybe weeks and months and years. This is what I want to say to you. God never wastes it. He has a plan to redeem it and turn it into something that brings him glory. You're not done with life because of one of these events in your life. That's not, it's not over. Here's something else. God never wastes a failure. Never. You say, but I was, I, I was, I was the one. I was the one who caused it. A way to go for admitting it and being vulnerable and transparent and honest. But God doesn't waste a failure. But here's what I want to say. You can't pretend. You can't. You can't just push it down and hide it and keep it in a closet and not deal with it and hope God doesn't kind of forgets and has amnesia about it. He doesn't. He knows everything. He forgets nothing. You have to bring it out of the darkness where Satan wants you to hide it because as long as you keep it there hidden, God can't bring wholeness out of it. You've got to bring it out of the dark, darkness into his holy light. In humility, you bring it to the cross and you say, God, I, I'm sorry. I can't believe what I did. You've got to be truthful about it. You can't pretend. You can't just sit back there and say, I hope for another message. No, you've got to deal with it. The messages may go on, but God doesn't in your life. He stops right there. You've got to deal with it. 
But then he said, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He means it. If you'll begin there, then he'll, then he'll begin to walk you into freedom, into the light of wholeness and redemption and freedom and joy and abundant living like you never imagined, but it begins there. You gotta bring it out into his holy light. You have to deal with it. That's why we have things like the set free. You gotta go to set free then. That's why we have the conquer series right now. You gotta go to conquer series. You're not just gonna, you, you, he wants to set you free from this. Remember what, what, the, uh, what the gentleman said there? He said, I was in bondage for three and a half years, but no more. But you're not going to do it by yourself. Get God's freedom, then go to set free. Get personal prayer ministry from our staff for healing. Attend the Congress, uh, Conquer series to battle with others to win your freedom. And then I want to I say this. And then I told you he wouldn't waste your failure and your hurt. Get ready to minister. Oh, yeah. Get ready to minister. He has this thing about taking broken people that have been made whole and turning them into ministers. Do you know much of your staff is made up of those kind of people? Just broken people that were made whole. They make amazing ministers. <laughs> I said to Ray Yoder, you know, when we came back from Vancouver, and he said, you can use my, <clears throat> you can use it. And I said, well, we're ready to use it now, your testimony. But I said, I want you to go back to Mary, and I want you to ask this question. Are you ready for what's going to change in your life? Because your life's about to change. I said, are you ready for the lineup that's coming at your door? That's what God does. Isn't that amazing? What a good God we have, don't we? You know, I wept over the crowds that were coming on Friday. They were coming by my windows there in my office, and so many of them looked so broken. I got up and I was pacing in my office, and I just wept. I said, God, how can we help them? I mean, yeah, food and clothing, that's, that's, that's great, but they're going to go out just as broken as they are now. How in the world can we reach them and help them get what we have? That's what God wants to do. He wants to, when you bring it to the light, He wants to heal you, and remake you, and then he wants to use all of us as ministers to get, I'd love to see every one of those from those crowds that came here in this church. I would love nothing better than that. And if they were so poor they didn't have a penny to ever give, I'd be happy to spend whatever we have to help them because I know how it changed me and how it's changed so many of you. Maybe you're here, you don't know Jesus. You need him today. No more, no more running from him. He's the only one that can help you. He's the only one that can help me or anybody. The world's proven it can't help anybody. If you want 
to be forgiven, you want a relationship and a new walk with him, then why don't you pray this prayer in your hearts right now and become a Christ follower, a Christian, a believer, once and for all. Dear Jesus, thank you for bringing me here and, and speaking to my heart today. I realize that I'm broken. I realize that I'm in need of help. I'm in need of a savior. I need your help. I, I ask you to forgive me for my sins whether it's adultery or whether it's a divorce whether it's premarital sex or homosexuality or uh, or pornography or lust what whatever it is I ask you to forgive me Lord I ask you to wash me clean make me whole I want to I want to become part, I want to be a Christ follower. I believe, Jesus, you died on the cross in my place to pay for my sins and that you can give me a different kind of life. I choose to let you run my life again. And I choose to join with other people who are on that same path, like this church. Please save me, Jesus. Thank you for doing that. Amen. Maybe you're here this morning. You're a believer. But you've been playing at this and you've been covering up on your sin. It's time to bring it out in the light. Here's a couple of steps. There's a prayer room there. You may be struggling with your sins. Uh, maybe you're dealing with a very difficult situation. You're a victim of adultery or divorce. You need somebody to pray with you. you. You need people in your life. You need the body. You need the church. Why don't you begin by going to the prayer room? Right through the double doors, there's a prayer room, and there's trained intercessors, confidential, and they'll help you. Then register online for the Conquer series. And third, contact either Tim Ryan or Grace Fast if you've been struggling in this area, uh, whether uh, a victim or otherwise in the area of adultery or divorce, they would be helping happy to help you and point you in the direction, right direction. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.